Welcome to the Pet Show with Jimmy Jelinek and Dennis Quaid. Are you looking for that special someone and their dog? A new dating app can match you with your perfect partner based on their dog breed. Well, have you ever dated somebody because of their dog? No, um, and I don't think that would bother me too much. You know, I would do whatever it took really to make it seem like the dog, you know, I'd like bring, put bacon in my pockets and stuff so the dog loved me and then by proxy the person loved me. Really, that's the secret to being a dog whisperer is having bacon in your pocket. Jack Nicholson and as good as it gets. Yeah, I mean, you, you could hack the whole product here just by having bacon in your pocket because they mm-hmm. would think you were the most caring, loving dog person in the world. Right, with such a great person, such a great guy. Absolutely. If dogs love you, who wouldn't, right? Exactly, if a dog loves you, you're golden, so just put bacon in your pocket. Right. <laughs> They call it the dog person's dating app. That's right. Finally, something for the dog obsessed to connect with other dog folks somewhere other than the dog park, especially during these COVID times when face-to-face interactions are forbidden. It's called Dig, and they've got over 300,000 users on their app. You can select potential mates based on dog size and other predetermined filters. We recently caught up with Dig founder Lee D'Angelo to get the lowdown on this hot new dating app. Lisa, welcome to the pet show. Tell us why a dog dating app. The lightning bolt was my sister, for sure. My sister is my co-founder and she was dating a guy who, he tried to be a dog person for her. He really did. But by the end of the relationship, he wasn't letting Layla, the Cavapoo, which for dog people, you know, that's a the closest thing to a teddy bear, right? It doesn't shed, it's about, you know, 20 pounds. And he wouldn't let uh, Layla on the couch. She'd put towels down and he was very nervous to have her in the apartment. Uh, And so she knew that being a dog person was so much a part of her life that there was no way they were gonna end up being compatible. And this was right around the time of the rise of the niche dating app, where everything from farmers only, which is for, you guessed it, farmers to sites like hater which matched people by the stuff they collectively hated whatever we're seeing massive spikes in usership across the board d'angelo sensed an opening based on the strong feelings that millennial pet owners had not just for their pets but how those pets would fit into the lives of their potential mates uh mary huh? what kind of dog is puffy border terrier border terrier like uh, benji oh you know, dating app world is changing drastically, um, but it's a very uh, young industry. Um, so, you know, people have been using uh, Tinder and Grinder for just about a decade, but people still are looking at ways of innovating. And so for us, we said, you know, one way we want to see dating apps do better is by really focusing in on the type of community you would want to date. You can search by size. You can even be a person who is merely dog curious and wanting to date a person with a dog. But what you can't do is separate by breed. We try not to encourage breedism, but we do let you search by dog size. But uh, when we were deciding dog filters or different filters for the dating app, we really wanted to focus on what was best for compatibility for both the users and but also for the dogs. We know that not a lot of dogs get along. 
Uh, I have a German short hair pointer who chases small dogs around until they collapse. And so if I could pick my person, and I'm married by the way, but if I could go at it again, pick my person, I would want to find someone probably without a small dog just to make sure that that was easiest um, for that compatibility factor. So not necessarily breed, definitely dog size, um, but importantly, you can search for someone without a dog yet. Dog people doesn't necessarily mean you have a dog right now. And especially in certain areas of the country, um, Boston, for example, does not have a lot of dog-friendly housing for single-person households or apartments. Uh, And so we see a lot of people under 30 who don't have a dog, but they're looking to date someone with a dog, which is an awesome plus when you're dating and you love dogs, uh, or looking to get a dog with someone in the future. Dig is one of a slew of companies within the larger pet tech category that is remaking pet care based on a seismic shift in the industry as a whole. Mainly, the entire notion of what it means to be a pet owner is changing. Well, it's all encompassing. You know, it's how you spend your time. It's how you keep your house. It's how you spend your money. Uh, When you're thinking about your dog, you're not just thinking about a pet. What I like to say is dogs have gone from the dog house to in your house to in your bed and now with you wherever you're going away from the house. And so when you think about it that way, you think about all the different ways that your dog is a part of your life. That's so important to find someone that that matches that that dog forwardness, if you will. And you guys have already had some marriage matches, I understand, on Dick, right? Yeah, yeah, it's pretty amazing. Uh, Actually, the first engaged couple was a 70-year-old and a 53-year-old. And what kind of dogs did they have? One of them had a dog, a rescue mix, and the other one did not. Uh, She thought you were supposed to have a dog, so she borrowed her friend's dogs for the photos, but then told him very quickly that it wasn't hers and still got along. Now, there's, there's almost an extra wrinkle with dog people because the people themselves could be compatible, but the dogs themselves might not be compatible. Has that become a barrier to some relationships because people, because the couple's dogs couldn't get along? Certainly, yeah. And one of the things that we said from the start is you want to know that up front, right? Like if you guys are going to get along and you start dating and then down the line you decide to introduce your dogs, then it's an issue. You know, that might be harder to wrap your head around or figure out the best way to go forward. You're going to be very you know, protective. Whereas if your dog's a part of the process from the very beginning, it's one of, you go on a dog friendly date as some of your first dates, you might be more open to trying to work through it or learning together how best to do that. That's why we really do lean on our trainers and our vet partners who give out great information on the best ways to introduce them and what to do if it looks like they aren't getting along. We have a pet show exclusive for you today. Dennis recently spoke with actress Sharon Stone on the Denisance about her upcoming role in the Ryan Murphy One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest prequel, Ratchet, to air on Netflix later this year. She plays Lenore Osgood, but it's her co-star that has everyone talking. Let's have a listen. My regular person that I'm with all the time is this cappuccino monkey that's on my shoulder. For real. And... It was wonderful. I thought when Ryan said, I want you to have this monkey, I was like, come on, come on. Don't do that to me. I can't have to deal with this monkey on my head the whole time. And no, he's like, no. I'm like, give me like a leopard. Give me something else. (laughs) No, no, it's a monkey. And like really a monkey on my back the whole time. And 
I got this monkey. I was like, I want to meet the monkey first. I want to get to know the monkey. I want to hang out with the monkey. I met this monkey and it was extraordinary. This monkey had been in Pirates of the Caribbean and really knew how to be an actor and was so present and so communicative. And talk about a lesson in going back to being present in your acting. Wow. It was incredible. I mean, I have scenes where it's just me and the monkey. Uh Like full dialogue and action and everything. And it's... It was extraordinary. It was beautiful. Wow. You had a real relationship. Yes. And it restored me as an artist. It was, and it's hilarious and wonderful. But it was just great. That's amazing. A monkey's purpose. Ratchet drops September 18th on Netflix. Check out the rest of the interview with Sharon Stone only on The Denissance, which airs new episodes every Thursday. Now back to the show. Next up, a fascinating look into the world of animatronic pets. A new company is taking on the business of dolphin shows and dolphin encounters by creating robot dolphins that swim, jump, carry humans, and communicate with crowds. Now, that's pretty amazing because I've been to many of these SeaWorld shows and dolphins on display, dolphins swim with the dolphins, did that with Jack when he was a young son. I I did uh, Jaws 3D and actually we shot that at SeaWorld in Florida. And I used to, uh, I swam with the dolphins and also the beluga whales, which was really quite extraordinary. But dolphins, I have to agree that I always felt that these dolphins were encaged, basically. They belonged in the open ocean. Oh yeah, I mean, these are amazingly brilliant animals. And this is going to stop them from being taken from the wild. It's gonna really reinvent a lot of these places like the sea worlds and places like that, where instead of having all of these captive marine animals, they're gonna be able to be more about the education and the entertainment, but without having to take these animals from the wild and these robot dolphins, and they're also going to be doing it with whales as well. I mean, they are incredible. You can't tell the difference. Killer whales. Yes. Uh, Well, you can't tell the difference, except the crowd's going to know that it's a robot dolphin. I guess so, but I think it's more for children's entertainment and children's education. Yes, uh, yes, you're right in the sense that they're going to know, but I, I think that's fine. You know, I'd rather have them know than have bunch of dolphins taken from the wild and you know these things can do the dolphin rides and stuff like that they can jump 15 20 feet in the air like the the technology built into them and then they have all this incredible sophisticated uh, machine learning inside of them that they put the program in and uh, they start learning their dolphin life just based on following other live dolphins it's a it's a fascinating concept Wow. I was in Iceland when I was filming uh, Enemy Mine. It was like during the 80s. And I remember offshore, there was a school of orcas, killer whales. And the two that were at SeaWorld, this was back in the 80s, that was 
it was I really, really felt for them. And, and they, they were really kind of cantankerous, you know, and so were the dolphins actually. It was just, you know, sort of like really, you kind of felt the, from their personalities that they, you know, uh, they were uptight. That was, you know, um, a little bit like they were holding a grudge in, in a sense, you know, that, that they were prisoners basically. Yeah. And uh, they say that dolphins are on a par with, uh, with uh, intelligence with, with humans, you know, language and emotions. And I think it's only recently really that we've finally come around to even admitting that animals have emotions, which has always seemed obvious to me, but it's a cruel thing, I think, to cage an animal like that. Absolutely. And this is gonna, you know, hopefully prevent that from going on at a mass level. I think they're, uh, this, this company in China is gonna be opening like a hundred of these aquarium parks all across the country. And each one of them is going to be stocked with this variety of animatronic dolphins. And then they're gonna expand. Well, are they gonna release the animatronic dolphins into the wild? <laughs> well, they want to. I was talking to the creator and he was really like, interesting to see how the real dolphins in the wild would, would respond. Well, the dolphin knows that it's a machine because yeah. you know with their with their sonar they can hear the machinery inside but they still like to play but what's fascinating to me is with with the artificial intelligence inside the robot dolphin if you release that robot dolphin into the wild it could be trained by that live dolphin and then the machine yeah. learning would would take over and, and then that turns into a whole thing Wow. Well, that gets into what ever since computers came about, about uh, artificial intelligence exactly. and becoming its, you know, how on uh, in exactly. 2001. That's what they call the singularity when, you know, our minds yeah. and computers mesh. I mean, that's getting pretty close to it. At that point, we could be staring at our robot dolphin masters. But yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of implications for this stuff. It's fascinating. Wow. Pretty amazing. In our dystopian future, after the last of every living creature has been hunted to extinction, our zoos and aquatic theme parks will most likely be filled with animatronic creatures that look indistinguishable from their real-life counterparts. Only this isn't the future, it's the present. And the goal, rather than replace what's been destroyed, is to conserve what still exists, as marine parks around the world face increasing pressure to abandon exhibitions featuring real whales and dolphins. Animatronic creatures can provide an appealing alternative to what's undoubtedly a cruel and unsustainable practice. In this scenario, the San Francisco-based special effects company Edge Innovations is making waves with its cutting-edge animatronic dolphin. The company, founded by visual effects veteran Walter Conti, who has worked on films like Anaconda, The Abyss, Jurassic World and Star Trek, creating some of the coolest animatronic creatures in cinema, along with Disney theme park veteran Roger Holzberg, has melded cutting-edge animatronic technology and artificial intelligence with a conservation-driven push to replace captive dolphins and orcas in theme parks. These upgraded robotic dolphins aren't headed for a Disney theme park or resort, though. Instead, they're being developed and tested at a cost of $26 million per unit for a series of attractions at a new Chinese aquarium where the government has put a stop to the wildlife trade as part of its efforts to slow and eventually stop the spread of COVID-19. We were fortunate enough to have the opportunity to speak with Roger Holzberg, one of the visionary creators of this so-called Dolphin Robotic Unit, or Drew. Let's listen as he tells us the origin of this improbable tale to free all the worlds. 
Edge Innovations has a 30-year history in the motion picture and theme park world. So going back to the first project they did was the Humpback Whales for Star Trek IV. If you remember that film, there was a female humpback and a calf. These were actually miniatures, which were adorable, about this big. Um, and then they built the full-sized front end of the humpback whale that Leonard Nimoy swims down and has a communication experience with. Um, marine animatronics then became Edge Innovation's specialty. The dolphins for the Flipper movies, the orcas for the Free Willy movies, the anaconda for the anaconda movie, the, uh, the submarines and mini submarines for the abyss, and even the front end of the deep sea challenger, which James Cameron used to pilot down to the bottom of the Marianas Trench, are all pieces of marine engineering that Edge Innovation did. Can you walk me through the making of a dolphin robotic unit? The guts inside the dolphin start with a skeleton that very much reproduces in terms of size and movement and dexterity the major motion of an adolescent and Atlantic bottlenose dolphin. Onto that skeleton then go the actuators that move it in the range that the major muscle groups of that animal literally move its exterior functionality with. Then the next overlay is a series of fat bladders and organ bladders that mimic the weight distribution and density of the animal and its guts, right? For lack of a better word. Yeah. And then finally, a skin goes over that made out of medical grade silicone and it is painted utilizing high definition photographs of a real animal so it's painted to literally match the skin and the skin colorations of that animal and finally the final details of eyes and teeth go into the animal then the technology to make it move starts. So right. there essentially are three versions of this dolphin, two of which are complete and the third one is in development. Version 1.0, which we piloted 20 years ago with Disney, is a version that gets controlled by two joysticks with two animators, each having a box, doing different functionality. It looks a lot like an old time video game. Um, okay. that you would have seen in an arcade. The controls do. Right. Look like, okay. you know, video game, yeah, yeah, arcade yeah. kind of joysticks. Um, version 2.0, which is the version that we utilized for the pilot with our Chinese client, has a degree of artificial intelligence now built into the dolphin, where the dolphin can swim at the surface, can do a shallow dive, can stay under for a bit and then come back to the surface as it would if it were taking another breath and then go back down. It can also begin a right turn or a left turn and complete that turn and rise back up to the surface realistically. That's essentially the artificial intelligence that that dolphin can do. Um, once it then, once you then bring people and either an educational program or an entertainment program into it, controls then 
supersede the artificial intelligence and an animator is then controlling the animal. And that's part two of it. Part of the reason why it moves and seems to be as as extraordinarily real as it is, is because of the talent uh, and experience of the animators who are controlling it. So those are the first two uh, scenarios. What's version three? Then brings on another level of artificial intelligence, which will enable the robot to be in what we call exhibit mode. Mm. So meaning that if an aquarium is open for 10 hours and, uh, and we are thinking that there is a, either a, there's an alternating educational show and entertainment show in that venue at the top of every hour that lasts for 15 minutes, the animators are doing the educational or entertainment show because that dolphin is interacting in real time in real situations. But for the other 45 minutes, it's just swimming in that tank, behaving like a dolphin. Okay. So the artificial intelligence uh, programming, you know, and, and uh, goes up to a new level that gives that animal the ability to free swim and behave like another animal and have uh, collision detection and all sorts of other smarts built into its AI. And can you ride these dolphins like at those dolphin encounters that you go to in, in Cancun or Orlando? So this version of the robot can do that although it's not specifically designed to do okay. that. And the and that brings up the a, a question that we get asked often, which I'm sure is on your list. Can it do everything that a real dolphin can do? Is that, <laughs> is that, is that one you want to ask me? Yeah, well, I was going to ask you what its top speed was, and then I was going to ask you uh, what we, yeah, you know, what can it do? <laughs> yeah, well, the top speed is... I don't know that we actually know because we've never had it in a space big enough to actually run it up to its top speed um, without having to turn, right? So you Um, haven't tested one in like the open ocean and just sent it into a school of dolphins or anything like that, have you? No. Well, so if you look at the Disney video, you will see that we did do a research experiment with real dolphins. but we did not put it in the same environment with the real dolphins. There were bars separating them. Okay. Um, the re- what we the research uh, what we wanted to see in that just brief snapshot of research was if the real dolphins would interact with the dolphin and do mimicry with it. So real dolphins teach their young through mimicry. We okay. knew that the real dolphins would know that this was not a dolphin. What about other non-dolphin species? Did they think it was real? The other animals in the aquarium knew, believed that the robot was a dolphin. Okay. Particularly the smaller animals, when it swam, would school underneath it and, you know, for protection, just like they do in the wild. But when we did the interaction with the live dolphins, they can echolocate through anything, basically. I mean, a real dolphin has the ability to see through you, right? So they could, they through echolocation could, which is essentially a high powered sonar, 
can mm-hmm. see through the skin of this, they know it's metal, servos, right. robotics. It might have a shape that looks somewhat similar to them, but they know this isn't a dolphin. So what we wanted to see was it, if dolphins, particularly dolphins in captivity, get very bored, they yeah. like to play with stuff, right? We wanted to see if they would do mimicry with the robot and potentially begin to teach it things if, there were, if the research were able to go on for a long period of time, like they do with their young. Right. So dolphins teach their young through mimicry. Um, you'll see in the video, the, dolph- the dolphins would come over and they would open their mouth and then the robot would open their mouth and dolphins would go, okay, that's fun. They would open their mouth again, open their mouth again. Simple mimicry, head shakes, you know, head right. shakes, right? Head swirls. So how long does it take to build one of these units? Uh, like one with the sophisticated AI inside it that would interact with children? Uh, for version 3.0 is about 18 months. Okay. Yeah. And then what happens? They get built in Northern California and then shipped to China or, or to New Zealand or to China. Like, I'm just curious there, how- There probably how is a stopover in New Zealand. Um, it's important to note also, we keep talking about dolphins, dolphins, dolphins. Dolphins is what we used for the pilot test and the video. Okay. Um, I can't give you specifics, but dolphins are the smallest of creatures that are being worked on for the Chinese aquariums. Oh, so uh, that could be robotic whales and octopi and great whites. The third thing that you just mentioned, how interesting might it be to have a small school of great whites in a large tank uh, in, because great whites have never been able to be kept in captivity before. They never will be able to be kept in ca- captivity, yet people, myself included, travel to crazy places in the world like South Africa to get in a cage and watch one swim by. I'm sub- have you guys been approached by the military at all? Like the opportunity to have submersibles that look like actual marine creatures, like it could be the ultimate camouflage. Wow, no, um, and I'll be honest, it's not one we ever thought about. Oh, is my mind that dark that I I, I immediately went to like, oh, this could be an amazing offensive weapon. Okay. <laughs> well, it's no, because I, you, I don't know that if you know, I, I, I know only because I'm plugged enough into the world that I knew trainers who worked on it. There were live dolphins who were trained uh, to do recon in the Persian Gulf, in Persian Gulf one. My real hope and dream is that we are able to create world ocean characters that younger people fall in love with. Because when we fall in love with something, when we grow up, we want to protect it. And my dream is that the characters we create cause our citizens of tomorrow to want to protect the world oceans and the creatures who live in it. So conservation through intellectual property. That is, uh, I think that's a very unique and, and, and innovative idea. I guess so. Have we really gone that far in destroying our planet in order to save what's left? Our only hope is to create future characters, IP, if you will, that through merchandise and story, we can prevent the extinction of species and the destruction of our planet. I shudder at the answer, but until we stop destroying ourselves, 
perhaps it's the only viable solution. Today in the Pets Show, we're going to check in with Captain Jake Anderson from Deadliest Catch. He's currently 30 miles offshore in the Bering Sea looking for crab with his crew aboard the Saga. And somehow we're able to chat via satellite with Captain Jake who's going to fill us in on the marine life of the Bering Sea. Let's get to it. Captain Jake, what's out there at the moment? Yes, we run into various different kinds of porpoises, whales, and killer whales, uh, humpbacks. It is one of the most amazing things about fishing in Alaska is the sea life, especially whales. I'll tell you a little story about killer whales and halibut fishermen. And this is halibut fishermen fish where we crab. So killer whales, as everybody knows, are really, really smart, right? Now, with halibut, there, it's like a, 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 what do you call it, a buffet. You got these hooks coming up with this, this halibut and codfish, and they just sit there and they just eat the best part. They'll leave you with the head. And so the only way to get rid of these guys is uh, they've tried a lot of things. The, my partner just bought this really, really expensive uh, sonar sound thing machine. Uh, oh Costs about $120,000, right? It made a bunch of noise, scared them off. Well, they're almost as smart as humans. Then after doing that for about six months, they started to learn that's the dinner bell. <laughs> so that didn't work. That's a waste of 120 grand. They can hear you when you turn on your hydraulics and they come running from 40, 30, 40 miles away. The only way to get rid of these killer whales out fishing, which it's so beautiful to see them, is you have to pass them off on another fisherman. So you have to drive them away as they're following you. And then you have to find someone else and you drive by them and then you leave. True oh story. my God. Oh, then the fisherman must be like, fuck you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you get in big trouble, but yeah. And they are beautiful to see in the wild because they have their pods, you know? You don't just see one, you see like five or six. And in halibut season, you'll see pods over here, pods over there. And it is something truly amazing, especially when the herring runs come in when we're fishing opies. As far as you can see, go out to the ocean where there's no land, as far as you can see, it looks like it's raining baseballs, but the sky is clear. As far as you can see, it's so abundant. You really get to see the depth, how much sea life there is in the Bering Sea. Not that I'm ever going to pilot a, a crab or a halibut boat, but what is the maneuver for piloting a, a school of killer whales off of your boat onto an unsuspecting captain? Well, it's really simple, right? So it, it's just as easy as it sounds. So you, you're motoring around the, the killer whales. They'll know that you're not hauling gear because they they're listening for the hydraulics to turn on, which is a high-pitched whine of, the, of like a 50 or 75 horsepower electric motor. Right. So they can hear a whine. So they'll follow you, you know. 
And a lot of times you'll go anchor up or you'll drift around for days, you know, hoping they'll leave. But if they don't, you just drive to the nearest longliner and hang out. And they'll hear them turn their hydraulics on or they'll hear the hydraulics and boom, they're gone. And then you bolt back to where you come from, came from, and you hurry up with all your gear before they figure it out, before the next pod comes and gets on you. Thank you, Captain Jake. We're going to check in with the saga periodically as he's out on the Bering Sea during crab season. Uh, this is fun for us and hopefully fun for you to see what he's seeing straight from the bridge. We'll talk to you later. We're going to have a deep and frankly disturbing conversation with Zoltan Ishtfarn the leader of the transhumanist movement, which forwards the belief or theory that the human race can evolve beyond its current physical and mental limitations, especially by means of science and technology. In this conversation, he takes on transanimalism, where our pets will live forever via artificial intelligence, cloning, and other means. Yeah, he's talking about everything else we're covering in this episode, but more from a philosophical level of your pets can now join you on this technological journey where we are one with intelligence and technology, which will allow you to live forever. If that means uploading your brain to the cloud or all these other right. things, he's also talking that you can do that with animals and it will probably happen with animals first. Probably will. It, it, we're talking about consciousness, basically, is what we're talking about. And uh, it's, I think we're going to be there before you know it, to tell you the truth, we're about being able to download or upload, <laughs> if you will, our, our uh, uh, being and consciousness onto uh, an artificial intelligent platform where it was. And I'm not sure if that's heaven or... Uh, uh, the middle place, uh, what it is, but we could basically live forever uh, until somebody deleted us, right? Let us gaze now into the looking glass of a world run according to the laws of transhumanism, that we will transcend the definition of what it means to be human. Through technology, we will become something more, something other, and that death will be just another obstacle to be cured rather than feared. With transhumanism, we will live forever aided by advances in technology. For many transhumanists, Moore's Law suggests these fields and others will continue to make increasingly accelerating leaps in power until nothing is beyond our reach. This is the singularity, a theorized future point at which advanced computing will achieve a kind of omnipotent self-awareness and become smart enough to modify, build, and improve itself exponentially. This intelligence will then solve every problem that has so far stumped our greatest minds. The singularity sits at the very heart of transhumanism. As without it, almost nothing the movement hopes for is possible. Its exact date is regularly rescheduled. Its advocates currently put it sometime between now and 2045. The leading prophet of transhumanism is 47-year-old Zoltan Ishvan. You may know him already from his quixotic run for president. 
or from his Amazon Prime series Immortality or Bust. He's a regular guest on Joe Rogan's podcast, where he spreads the gospel of a future free from disease or death. He's a writer, speaker, TED guru, and the author of an Ayn Rand-like novel aptly titled The Transhumanist Wager. But he joins us on the pet show today to speak not about the human condition, but instead animals, and mainly what pets in pet care will look like in a world of unlimited technological promise, untethered from earthly bounds and set aloft, turbocharged by Moore's Law and our quest for pet immortality. This, in fact, is known as transanimalism. Buckle up. It's a strange and bumpy ride. There is, per se, a trans-animalism philosophy, but, you know, it's not as, I would say, uh, developed as, let's say, transhumanism, where you want to make the human into some kind of cyborg. But don't get me wrong, there are many people that are already doing lots and lots of transhumanist uh, kind of prerogatives with their animals. You know, for example, there's a, an initiative right now to try to get uh, a, some type of headset so that you can hear what your cat or your dog is saying to you. Uh, and it, it's something that it would wear and take the brainwaves of this animal and translate it into audible speech. Of course, there's also other things too, you know, this idea of maybe through genetic editing, you might be able to enhance your pet's brain and its capacity. And, uh, you know, I've written about this too. I, I had this, uh, this great challenge one day uh, when my uh, cat of 14 years unfortunately passed away. And did I bury the cat or did I actually try to cryopreserve the, the cat? And I really love this cat. And, um, but the problem with cryopreservation is one day your cat may come back to life through technology. And then let's say you enhance it with transhumanist technology. Maybe your cat becomes smarter than you. It, it very much changes the entire dynamics of what it means to be a pet owner. And that scared me. I wasn't sure I wanted a cat that was uh, as smart as me or playing chess <laughs> with my children or things like that. So these are some of the the trans-animalistic type of endeavors that are going on in the transhumanist community. But a lot of it is still uh, mostly science fiction. Knowing that a lot of this is science fiction, can you walk me through the landscape of what the next 25 years, so to speak, of pet ownership will look like? Because I imagine we're based on, you know, the, the speed of AI and, and all of that, we're in for a profound revolution or shift in the notion of what pet ownership or even what a pet means? Well, I think dramatically speaking with pets, because, you know, it's one thing to change the human being into something like cyborg or upload your consciousness. It's a whole nother thing to take your animals and to start to adapt them to science and technology. But I think the real challenge for pet ownership here in the next, let's say even 10 or 15 years is robotic pets, because you already have pets that, for example, can open the front door or that have built-in smoke alarms so that when they're with your kids, they actually can save your child from, let's say, a fire if you're not aware of that. And, and also, of course, if you have some type of robot pet, you can control it on your iPhone. And they're getting so sophisticated every year that they can almost run and mimic the running capability, let's say, of a normal dog. And except they have, you know, the ability to do calculations for you, uh, you know, in the future, they might be able to do dishes. The idea of pets is going to change dramatically as we start inviting artificial intelligence and robots into our house. For example, we have a four foot robot in my house that my kids adore. Now, of course, we also have a little dog that they adore. But 
the, the robot is actually more of a, a kind of an intellectual comparison to them when they want to do things like they say to the robot, teach me how to dance and the robot will teach them how to dance. That's not something you can do with a dog. Uh, with a dog, you can play with it endlessly. But the, the AI and the robotic uh, pets that we're going to be bringing into our households here in just the next five, 10 years, I mean, there are already huge amounts of them out there, are going to be very much one-on-one -on -one compatible with our intellectual capabilities. And that's where I think pet ownership dramatically changes. Most of us have pets for either um, just love uh, or companionship or protection. But I think robots will be able to offer a, a dramatic amount of, and don't get me wrong, the robot dogs don't look like robot dogs. They're even softer than normal dogs based on the new synthetic furs that, that these, you know, these companies are creating when they create robotic pets. I mean, these things feel like the, the real thing. So, it, you know, in the future, we're going to have this real competition for real pets from robotic pets. I guess the missing link there is the dog, the, the, that biological dog can still provide, you know, it still has empathy for its its owner. Is is that sort of what's 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 missing in in the comparison? Well, I think you have to understand. Yes, a dog has empathy, but empathy is also something that can be programmed in a very real way. And more importantly, you can also program randomness into, let's say, a robotic pet. So the thing that makes you know people and pets so wonderful is that we never really know what they're going to do. One day they love you, love you, love you, and then the next day they bite you or they run away or something like that. It's a constant adventure, there's curiosity involved. Well, we can program robots so that they do random things that completely baffle us, and then we explain, ask them to explain why they did it, and they don't have to give an explanation. They were programmed to be random. That's how empathy develops in a real way. We can program a robot to serve our every need and love us in every way, except maybe 10% of the time. And that will always throw us off as we won't know when it's happening. So I'm a firm believer that if a human or an animal can do something in its behavior, um, we'll be able to in here in the next 10 or 15 years program that in, maybe even program it better. And, uh, and so, yeah, we'll be able to cover empathy with AI uh, and robotic pets for sure. Now I've read, I think it was in your writing, you, you're talking about, there was something in MIT Technological Review they were reporting that Chinese scientists have made incredible headway creating something called designer pets. Yeah, so right now, and this is just from, you know, I haven't actually been to China into these laboratories, but as a journalist, I've kind of verified it through different types of articles. It appears that China has been experimenting with genetically modified animals that are, for example, stronger. So, you know, I mean, we're able to produce already a dog that would have legs that run faster than the normal dog. And you do this at the embryonic level by you know, messing with its DNA footprint and its DNA genes and things like that. And then you come out with some of these pictures that you've seen in the Chinese laboratories of these animals that have these incredibly husky legs. And you know, if they're a work dog or if they're a running dog or a racing dog, then they can do these things better because they have been designed that way. And um, you know, that takes us to some very thorny areas because it's no longer just this natural phenomenon where you throw in the dice and this is what you got out and this is what it is. But of course, all this relates also to designer babies, not just designer pets. Like at some point, do we all have our children be, you know, six foot five and, and you know, and tall and skinny and have no, uh, no hereditary issues like uh, cancer uh, probabilities or whatnot. And that's what they're starting to do on these tests with animals and especially pets is because, you know, there's a long line of designer pet 
breeding that has gone on for hundreds of years as people try to find exactly the, the furriest, the cutest, the nicest, the best, most protective, you know, for whatever your purpose is. And of course, genetic editing is going to lead that entire field and make it explode. Now, talk to me about, you've, you've done some research into Magic Leap, which is a pretty secretive company, but they are working with holographic pets, both for companionship, but also potentially for security. Is that, is that correct? Uh, they are, and I think this is one of the most fascinating fields. Unfortunately, you know, three years ago, we thought Magic Leap was going to become the greatest company ever. They've had some issues with their software and with not being able to develop and evolve as quickly as possible. That said, I still firmly believe that they will lead the way forward, and they will, if not them, another company will, with this idea of holographic, uh, you know, lives that can kind of come, you know, in front of you. And so, you know, the, the ideal setup set is that you have something, uh, kind of a beam that shoots out of your ceiling, somewhere in the corner of your room. And instead of you having to take time to read to your child, this holographic image that is AI controlled could then read the book to your child and your child could interact with this AI. Now we already have basic things like this, um, but the idea is really creating an AI that can interact as the holographic image. Now we're, we're sort of there, but we're probably gonna be closer there in five years. But now how far do we go? Do we take this all the way to the level of a pet? You know, if you have enough cameras in your room and it covers all the angles uh, with 3D positioning, you can have a pet 100% in your property that never disappears. That's always visually shown as a holographic image in your life. And of course, if it's AI controlled, then it knows how to, uh, you know, to respond to and how to behave and maybe evolves. And let me say also, one of the more important um, attributes of this type of technology is really for pets that die. There and, and people that die, there are companies that are working on trying to create holographic images of deceased uh, loved ones and deceased pets because maybe you can't bring the pet back, but you can bring back much of its original character because you've either programmed it in through video or through monitoring and AI has learned how to facilitate that. I mean, we already have some of these companies dedicated to ongoing Facebook pages that continue to post after you're dead, but this is a much bigger thing. It's like you would have a continuation of a holographic image in your house, let's say, of, of this animal that, you know, barks the same way, makes the same audio things, uh, you know, acts the same way because it was based on actual footage of the real animal from the first place, then compiled by AI to make it you know, in a, in a randomized way, in a way that, that makes perfect sense. And so that's another part of where this pet ownership is going. It's not just, it may, you may have one pet your whole life. It was only alive in the physical form for 10 years, but now you have it another 70 years and it still protects you. It still listens to you. They may not eat and it may not poop. You know, maybe these are good things. It's cheaper probably in the long run, but it can still be a great guard dog. It can still tell you, let's say if there's a snake in the house, if you live somewhere where there are snakes. So there are a lot of different types of features that people might want from these holographic images, uh, holographic really living kind of creatures. I, I, whether they're living or not, of course, that's a big question, but they're certainly gonna appear to be that way. One of the benefits of all this technology is the potential for your pet to live forever and protect your children from the concept of loss. But isn't that an important lesson in life? That life ends and that we most that we must make the most of it while we're here. The problem you bring up is probably the main argument against transhumanism and probably trans animalism, if you want to look at it like that, is this idea that we live in a life and death cycle and the yin yang is what gives a lot of us meaning. 
But I think as we look into the future, the main argument against that from a transhumanist point of view is that we're going to be combining our brains with, you know, artificial intelligence, which might be a million times smarter than us, probably here within 10 or 20 or 30 years or 50 years. Um, and the point of the story is that our understanding of life right now is based on the three pounds of meat that is on our shoulders. And that's just three pounds of meat. But we might at some point have a brain that's the size of, I don't know, the Death Star in terms of computational, comp you know, compu uh, how much computation you can do. And I think in terms of that, our feeling, our love, our sense of care, the, the senses, we don't, we may just be limited to our five senses. What I'm trying to say is, as animals die, that's tragic and it gives us meaning, but we may find meaning from having much bigger capacity to understand life because our brains and our intelligence level is a million times what it is now than the human brain we have. And that could give us plenty of love, plenty of enough knowledge to even know the life cycle. We may not have to experience it. We can just have the fundamental value of the implicit meaning of that. And that's really the transhumanist agenda. It's not that we want to take away meaning of life because we're killing death. It's that we love life so much we want to preserve it. And we're hoping we can learn about these things through another method, hopefully just by being more intelligent. Let's talk for a moment about pet tech. How do you see that changing pet care in the not too distant future? Well, I think, you know, first off, I think the coronavirus has very much damaged our economy and our perspective to even judge these timelines. It's very right. hard to know how economies will, have, will handle things. But, you know, that aside, because budgets are being cut and companies are may not survive, but that aside, let us just hope that we can continue and economies will you know, grow, there would be money putting into this stuff and people would continue to, you know, be purchasing pets and new ways of it. I would say that, you know, in the five-year window, not that much different will be changed, except for maybe this special headset where you can interact with your pet because it reads brainwaves. Within 10 years, though, I think there's going to be a large movement afoot to probably have a perpetual, like, uh, caller that always somehow reads signals and talks to you on a day-to-day -day level and makes your pet much more controllable. Uh, and not necessarily we control it, but it can kind of interact with you in a very real way. And I think everybody will probably get that type of collar or that type of just little, uh, let's say it's just gonna be a little implant. Maybe it goes on the top of your, your animal's head and in the fur, you won't even notice it. But that's how far this kind of brainwave technology like Elon Musk is working on with Neuralink. He says he's gonna have human trials this year where you commune with AI and AI communes back with you and you're, you can in many ways think in the cloud. Now, it's not as easy as that. That might be five, 10 years down the road where you like use Google Maps in your brain, but that's exactly the technology they're doing human trials with later this year. So I think the same thing will apply to pets in this way, because there's not big, as big of a market with pets, it's actually human brainwave technology that's leading the way. But eventually there'll be companies, as you mentioned, that are really working on what can we do for the pet industry in itself, which of course is a massive industry as well. I think it'll take a back seat to the human uh, industry in terms of brainwave technology, but it will come. And once that comes, I think it will really change not only how we perceive our animals, but also how animals perceive us. Because imagine if all of a sudden you could have a conversation with your dog, your dog's life would be changed that day just as much as yours. Because I would say, you know what, you, why don't you go out and enjoy yourself and you know, you don't need to, you know, your dog could learn much more. It's, I, I don't want to bring up kind of, uh, you know, Hollywood movies, but uh, Planet of the Apes is a very good idea of what happens when an animal becomes just a little bit smarter. That little bit leads to this, and then it leads to this, 
And very quickly, within a span of two years, that animal could become very smart. We don't know how much dogs are using of their brain power. If they're only using 10, 20%, and we give them the capacity to use 50%, they might be as smart as dolphins very quickly. And that could change everything if we can talk to them. They could be very good companions. We haven't really talked about genetic editing yet. How is our ability to manipulate genes within animals going to change the types of pets that we can own and care for in the future? Not only can we modify the animals we're going to have, but we can create brand new types of pets that we've never seen before. Like okay. there's a very good chance that we're going to have um, mini dragons that are about two feet high that we can genetically edit and create here in probably 10 years time. Except we're going to create it with traits where it doesn't bite you at night, but it's cute and snuggly, and maybe it even has little tiny wings. These, this is really where I think the future of pets and the industry can go, is this creation of brand new ideas. You know, my kids like to talk about the, the lion and the tiger mixed together. Oh, the and liger. These are the kind, yeah, the liger. These are the kinds of things that I think are very possible in genetic editing within five to 10 years time. And you'll have a very good shot at being able to do that if governments allow you to do that. And again, you're not creating a liger in terms of like a, two, a 500 pound one. You'd probably be able to genetically modify it into a mini one. So you'd probably have something the size of maybe a, a poodle. And I think this in terms of where the industry is going could be where most the venture funding will go into because who doesn't want a mini liger? Like that would be a great thing to have. Yeah. Who doesn't want a mini dragon? I would love that. And then obviously, you know, the everyone wants a dinosaur so you know when they crack that code you know uh, everything's open but at the same time i i worry that there will be a lot of broken eggs too in terms of like the freakish abnormalities that come out when something with that crispr goes wrong and like the the, the dragon's born without a head or something or or what have you well, no, and you're, you're already seeing this in certain types of industries. You know, they're trying to create, for example, farm-bred salmon, and then some of the salmon doesn't taste nearly as well, or half the species dies off from a virus. Of course, they're trying to create pets like the, uh, you know, king cobras that have no venom glands. So you just have the king cobra that's just a nice snake. There's all these different things that genetic, uh, you know, in genetic editing that they're trying to do, especially in Asian countries, which don't have the regulatory power that let's say the West has. So they're really leading the charge on this. And of course, like you said, broken eggs, that's the big danger is that there's gonna be a lot of abuse and uh, there's gonna be a lot of bad things that happen. There's gonna be a lot of like horrible experiments as, as you know, uh, the eugenics of pets sort of moves forward. But at the same time, you know, if it does have maybe a, somewhat of a good regulatory environment, you might end up with cute little ligers that are wonderful pets that actually add a huge amount to people's lives. And even you might even be able to create them so that they live dramatically longer, 50, 60 years using some of the DNA of turtles who end up living longer and stuff like that. So we're getting to a point where we might be able to have lifelong pets through genetic editing. And this is something that I think, you know, it might have a real attraction for, for the human race. Thank you, Zoltan Ishvan. It is indeed a disturbing universe. But I, for one, do not fear the coming super pets. In fact, I cannot wait for the day when they arrive. Until that point, I'll have to occupy my time by teasing George with a laser pointer. Or achieving my long-standing dream of owning a helper monkey. <laughs> Live long and prosper. The Pet Show is brought to you by Audio Up Media. And is written and produced by me, Jimmy Jelinek. And co-hosted by Dennis Quaid. Executive producers are Jared Gustat and Dennis Quaid. 
Our editor is Bill Marks, and our story producer is Emma Rapold. We'll talk to you later.